OWC Radio number 23, a long conversation with Photoshop guru David Biedney. everyone, Tim Robertson. I am the host of OWC Radio, and this is episode number 23. Coming up uh, real quick here on the show, I've got a conversation that I had with David Bienni. We did it yesterday, uh, yesterday afternoon, and quite honestly, it went a lot longer than I was planning on. But it was a good conversation. It went a, a couple directions that I really wasn't expecting, but sometimes that happens with guests. You don't know where the conversation is going to go, and usually that's a good thing. At least in my opinion, um, it makes it more real. You know what I mean? We don't do scripted interviews here. I don't send the guests, okay, here's the questions I'm going to ask you. I never, ever, ever do that, and I never will. Um, <clears throat> I've had people that they wanted to come on the show, they wanted to be a guest, uh, but they absolutely refused because I didn't tell them ahead of time what I was going to ask them. Um, I like the spontaneity. I like to get to know the real people. I don't want to script out an interview. I don't think you guys want to hear that, and I certainly don't want to participate in that. So, I mean, it is, it's like 50 minutes long or so, the conversation with David. So this is probably going to be one of our longer episodes. Uh, I could have edited it down, but honestly, I'm just going to leave it the way it is. I thought it was really good, and uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. I, David said he had a lot of fun doing it, so... Uh, You'll hear that in just a few minutes. Also on this show, uh, I'm going to get to some of your feedback, a lot of feedback uh, from the last couple episodes, and uh, I definitely, definitely want to talk about that. But first, I want to send a shout-out thanks to Steve Sandy. Now, Steve was the very first guest on OWC Radio. In fact, when I did an interview with Steve, <laughs> we didn't even know what the show was going to be called. We just knew that it was going to be the Other World Computing Podcast, but we didn't have a name. We, we didn't even have a logo. We didn't even have OWCRadio.com yet. So I actually did an interview with Steve maybe a month before the the official show launched. And uh, I, I like Steve. He's a really good guy. And yesterday, uh, Wednesday as I record this, um, the 14th of April, I did a two-all, I, I think that's how you say it, two-all, the unofficial Apple weblog, T-U-A-W, TV live show with Steve. That was a lot of fun. It went about an hour and 15 minutes. I actually posted the uh, the recorded show. It's a Ustream recorded video up at OWCRadio.com. So you can actually go up there and watch that. Um, the video is basically Steve staring at his uh, eyesight camera and me staring at mine. But uh, I, I have a few props that I use, the iPad a couple times, the iPhone. Um, you actually get to see at least what's behind me here in the studio, uh, an infamously known as the, the teddy bear. And if you watch the video, you'll find out why. But you could find that at OWCRadio.com. And make sure you check out the unofficial Apple Weblog site as well. It's one of my favorite Mac websites in the world. It's simply fantastic. But you know, when it first started, it was very snarky. They don't have that snarkiness anymore, and I, I appreciate that. 
If you want to contact the show, you could do so via email. The email address is podcast at maxsales.com. That comes directly to me. If you want to do audio, in other words, if you want to send me audio feedback, which I love, you can email an MP3 file to me or a WAV file if you like. Same address, podcast at maxsales.com. You can actually record that on your iPhone, if you have an iPhone, and send it to me that way. Or you can pick up any telephone and dial 1-801-938-5559. That's our Skype number. You can just leave a message there, and I can uh, grab the audio from that and play it in the show. Now, I want to get into the uh, feedback that I've received from you guys over the last couple of days, uh, maybe the last week or so, before we get to the David Bienni interview. The first one comes from uh, David from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. David writes, You said you wanted to hear from people about the iPad, so I'm writing. There's a lot of SaaS talk about the iPad, and that's a lot of fun. One thing I find hilarious is that a lot of the criticism comes from people who haven't actually used one, but some have, including tech writer Jeff Jarvis. I just saw this article about content creation, and I gave my 10 cents worth. Basically, Jarvis says that we are all content creators, and you can't create content on the iPad. And he gives a link to the businessinsider.com article, which I will actually put a link to in show notes for episode number 23 at uh, radio.com. So you can follow along and go up to that website and uh, read Jeff Jarvis's article. David actually posted his response <clears throat> excuse me, to, in, to Jeff Jarvis in this email, and he writes, And this is a response to Jeff Jarvis. I couldn't disagree more. I find it much easier to share images, links, and everything else on an iPad than a laptop. Mind you, you, if I wrote articles for a living, I probably wouldn't use an iPad to do it. But as far as enjoying music, video, text, and games, I think the iPad is great. For example, to share a photo on iPad, you just touch it, save it, and then upload it or send it via an email with another touch versus right-clicking, a concept still foreign to my parents, saving the file to a hard drive, opening an email application, finding the file on the hard drives, many times not the easiest thing to do, especially for someone not familiar with computers, attaching it to the email, again, some people don't even know what that is, then sending it. Of course, uh, to interject here, David, if you're an iPhoto, you just uh, select the photo and click the little mail button in it does all that for you. I think the bigger issue is for people who are computer savvy to get used to having non-traditional devices. Doing things on my iPad may seem difficult for someone using a mouse, for someone using a mouse and a file system all their lives, but for others, this is the thing they are looking for. I find it funny that the people reporting on iPad are the very same people who wouldn't want one, professional writers. You can see that bias shine through very clearly in this article. If you don't like an iPad, don't use one. Laptops are still on sale. And then back to me in uh, David's um, email. But in general, I think that Cory Doctorow, I haven't touched an iPad and never will critique like the one you linked to an OWC radio podcast post is ridiculous. Just because there's an excellent way to consume media and a new way to create it doesn't mean that the old one will just disappear overnight. Thanks for OWC Podcast. I have been a customer at OWC for three years and love the products and services. Thank you very much, David. Yeah, you know what? Um, 
a lot of people saying, well, here's the iPad and this spells the doom for the Macintosh. And uh, no, it doesn't. Because let's be honest, radio is still going strong. Television didn't kill radio. Radio's still out there. In fact, the internet didn't kill television. Television's still going strong. Pirating didn't kill the movies. They just had the biggest grossing movie of all time this year. So, yeah, some people just need to calm down, I think. And I think, David, you're absolutely right. Jeff Lamont writes, Tim, here's a thought about the iPad. As it is, this thing is great. But imagine a 13-inch iPad with two or more A4 chips, a USB port, a 256-gigabyte SSD drive, and a version of OS X that works like the iPhone iPod Touch OS, the MacBook of the future. I think the iPad is a trial balloon for Apple to see how consumers react to this platform. This thing is the future of computing. The Mac Pro and iMac are safe, but this could eventually replace all other portable computers. I want iLife on here. It will be interesting to see how GarageBand or Logic will work on the iPad. I know it won't happen with the iPad as is, but this big interface would be awesome for controlling waveforms, photos, and video clips. I have a thought for the haters out there as well. Resistance is futile. <laughs> I like that. Uh, regards, Jeff. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, I don't know. It, it very well could be the future of computing, or it could just be a subset of what we already have. And, of course, that's what it is right now. Um, as for them converting the Mac OS over to a touch interface, I don't really think that's necessary because they already have a touch OS. Um, and it's going to continue to expand and, and get better as time goes on. So only the future will uh, will hold the answers. From Neil Wharton, Hi, Tim. Have you tried Caliber for EPUB conversions? Does the, does a slightly better job than Stanza, and it's free. No, I haven't, Neil. Um, and you're not the first one to actually mention this. Well, actually, you were the first one. But I heard when I was doing uh, Two All Live yesterday, Two All TV Live, that thing, with Steve Sandy that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, I was actually talking about converting EPUBs, well, I, converting PDFs to EPUBs using Stanza and then syncing those EPUBs to your iPad. And someone said, uh, hey, you should really try Caliber. It's better. So that's two now. So that means I definitely have to check it out. Unfortunately, while I'm recording here in the studio, I'm not at home in front of the computer that I actually use to do all my conversions with. So I have to remember when I get home to do that. And lastly, but certainly not least, Phil Paxman writes, I have two questions. How did your in-laws like using the iPad? I'm curious to know how the older generation takes to it. Also, does your new aluminum Apple remote control work with it? I'm wondering if someone wants to use the VGA adapter to do a keynote presentation. Do you need to be within reach of it, or can you use the remote? Thanks. Um, I'll go in reverse order. No, the remote control does not work with the iPad. It doesn't have an IR receiver. Um, So, no, it it doesn't, unfortunately. It'd be kind of cool if it did, but I think the whole point of using the iPad as a presentation tool is that you would actually be holding the iPad. So you can just swipe to the next um, screen and that sort of thing. Um, and of course you can also show video and anything like that with the VGA adapter. As far as my in-laws, how did my wife's mother and father, and remember they're in their late seventies, how did they like the iPad? Well, we had told them before that we would like to get them online with a computer. And the initial thought was that we would simply give them 
uh, my wife, Julie, her older MacBook, which is in like perfect condition. She doesn't really do a whole lot with that MacBook. Um, she checks her email and plays Farmville. And well, although she, well, I can't say that she did it on the MacBook Air, but I replaced that machine for her with a new MacBook Air, a 13 inch, ridiculously thin, but she loves it. In fact, she just used it for the last two days to do our taxes. So uh, she's very happy with the MacBook Air. But we do have this MacBook sitting here, and the thought was we'll give this to her parents. Of course, I've talked about on the show a couple weeks ago that we've decided now that we're going to sell that MacBook, and I still haven't sold it. It's still sitting there. I need to get Julie's information off of it, reformat it, uh, make it factory stock again, and then put it on Craigslist or something. Uh, Hopefully somebody will buy it. And then use the proceeds from that sale to buy them an iPad. Of course, we really did want them to see what an iPad was, how it worked. So when they were over the day before Easter, they got to use the iPad. And they seemed to really take to it. I did notice a few things. She thought that she being Julie's mom, she can just swipe her finger over it. But sometimes she would actually start the swipe farther off screen than she should have. So the swipe really wouldn't take. Um, And that was kind of confusing for her. And I could kind of understand why that is. We kind of take it for granted that you kind of put your finger right in the middle of the content that you're trying to swipe and then swipe. She's putting it to the very edge of the iPad and swiping across the entire screen. Thus, sometimes she's swiping over um, non-swipeable content on the screen and it's not picking up you know, exactly how that's supposed to work. So that's kind of a problem. And I can see how, if no one's ever used a a device like this, and let's be honest, very few have, that that could be a little confusing. I thought I just swiped. Well, you do, but you got to swipe in the content area itself on the picture. So, but other than that, she, they really liked it. Her, her mom in particular is her eyes kind of lit up when she was playing with it. She really liked uh, pushing it and touching it, and she had a good time. So I, I'm really looking forward to getting them the uh, the iPod Touch. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the iPad. And uh, letting them go to town with it. So with that, I'm going to do the David Bienni interview here on the podcast. And I hope you enjoy it. I'd really like some feedback from you guys. Again, podcast at maxsales.com, and that'll come right to me. In the meantime, have a fantastic weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. And I'm back, and I'm joined by David Bietney. Hello, David. Hello, hello, hello. You know, when it comes to Photoshop, you are the man. How long uh, you been? How long has it been that you've been intimately involved with Adobe Photoshop now? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Photoshop just had its 20th anniversary, uh-huh. which would put me at about 22 and a half years. That long? Yeah. Uh, long before Adobe ever saw it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so let's start there. Let's talk a little bit about the 20 years of Photoshop because I didn't get to see it. I really wanted to, but I was predisposed of at the moment. You did a demo at this year's Macworld Expo of Photoshop 1.0. That's correct. How did that go? <clears throat> that was cool, I got to imagine. How did you how did you do that presentation? Well, it, it, there were there were there was a primary plan and the backup plan and and the primary plan was that my um 
my good old titanium G4 laptop, which still runs amazingly and, and has Classic on it. If you have Photoshop 1.0 on a machine that's got Classic, it'll just run, <laughs> which is an really? amazing testament. Absolutely. Wow. We're, we're talking about, and we showed this during the demo, where actually what uh, Russell Brown, the senior creative director of Adobe, did was he brought a laptop that was running an old original ROM emulator that I think John Knoll had set him up with. And, um, and he was running Photoshop 1.0 on that. So he, had, uh, he brought his laptop, had Photoshop 1.0 running on it. It was actually really fun because we got to show the audience when we started that you know, in, in the era when we're used to seeing these multi-gigabyte installs, when you put something like Photoshop on your machine, Photoshop 1.0, the entire code base of the program was like under, I think it's like 780-something kilobytes. Just nothing. It's like like a like a spit in the wind. Today, that would be like a library, a uh, support library for an application. Then it was the whole app. Yeah, the whole app, it's smaller. You could fit the whole app five times over into an average MP3 file now. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, it's really something else. And it tells you something about the history of software development in that, you know, and overall, you could probably say this for all software, um, what you find is that increased programming resources allowed programmers to basically spread out and sort of practice less efficient coding. That's a gross generalization. No, I would agree with you. It's I also true. It yeah, is, no, absolutely. It is. When you only had, you had to fit the entire operating system on one floppy drive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You better be pretty creative. You need to know what this application is going to do and how it's going to do it because you don't have a lot of room to add any fluff. Right. So do you think that a lot of applications now are just, yeah, we got all this room, go ahead? Uh, I do think so. And I think that's the one, one of the good things about all of the um, resources being thrown at development for things like smartphones and small portable platforms is that we're going back to some of these efficient coding schemes because of the reality that... Uh, those devices have a whole lot less memory to play with. I, I was reading that, like the iPad. People think that you know when they buy an iPad that the gigabytes of of memory that come in that are like RAM, and it's like no, 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 no. That's your storage. I think that thing has two hundred fifty six gig or two hundred fifty six megabytes. Uh, megabytes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, which under- is nothing. I mean, right. literally, that's nothing. Right. So the fact that people are coding real apps for that, like, I, I mean, I haven't used an iPad yet. I'm dying to see what Keynote feels and works like. But if, you know, Apple can make that work in 256 megs of RAM, uh, today that's actually pretty good. Oh, absolutely. And why can't you make the, the desktop apps a little bit more leaner and meaner so we can have literally twice as many apps running at the same time and they're not resource hogs? Yeah. If well, you could do it on the iPad, I mean, you know. Right. So. Go ahead. Well, hopefully we'll see some of those good practices return as more and more development dollars are thrown at these mobile uh, platforms. Hopefully well, that will trend. Before we get into the new Photoshop, which I'm dying to learn about, um, let's stay with this subject for just a minute. Mm-hmm. With all these developers creating great software on both the iPhone and the iPod, t- or the uh, iPad, I should say, do you think there's a fear that a lot of developers are going to start ignoring the Mac or, consequently, the PC? 
one of the major trends that, that I see, and it's, I certainly think a lot of other people who um, study the industry uh, recognize at this point, there has been a bifurcation of the hardware and software worlds where we have this clear delineation between devices of consumption and devices of production. Uh, and overall, I think one could actually take that idea and map it into many aspects of our society. Uh, we are clearly a consumer society. There is much less emphasis put on overall production of whatever, fill in the blank, um, in, in the same way that we've seen so much of the manufacturing base of this country sort of get exported out um, to the third world, not to go down a political direction, but it's important because um, we're seeing this sort of reflected in so many aspects of who we are, and computers are no different, and communications technology is no different. So you look at things like the iPad, right? And it's clear to me, for example, that this is a device primarily designed for consumption of media, not for the creation of it. I totally agree. Right? So you have that reality. That basically underscores this idea that with all of these consumption devices, who the heck is making the stuff that people are going to consume? And the answer is there's still a fairly significant, important, really critical core of media artists, of communications experts, of authors. And of one could animators. even argue that because we have so many new distribution channels mm -hmm. that we need more content creators. And Absolutely. that stuff like the iPod and podcasting such as this show and video, the pro proliferation of cheap equipment that we can use to create very compelling content simply furthers people like you and I to create more content to distribute on these mobile platforms, whether it's an iPad or an Android phone or what have you. So even though there's a lot more of those devices and a lot more of those users, there's a more of a demand for the creative aspect. I, I think that's pretty clear. And what are you going to create content on? Uh, an iPad, an iPhone, or a real computer? And the answer is no question. The real computer remains as important as ever. What you have to take into, into account, Tim, is that most of the people who are proclaiming the death of the desktop tend to be analysts who haven't actually produced anything of note <laughs> in a long time. They're consumers. They're not people. They're not even making new ideas. They're basically recycling ideas from up the, the, food, the, the, the food chain, from up the stream. Yep. So a lot of these people, they wouldn't know creativity if it hit them in the face with a two-by-four. So when they make proclamations about the desktop being dead, I have to temper that with the idea that these are not people who are really knowledgeable about anything but their very small microscopic lens. And, and that really is focused on, because most of them are people who literally have never made anything at all. They don't understand the idea of production. They don't understand the importance of it. Because, like again, it, it's reflective of the fact that in our society, so much of what is made is, is not something that we see happen. And, and you can see this in so many different aspects of our lives. I mean, look at the fact that people go to a grocery store and buy processed foods. They have no idea where these things came from. They don't look carefully at the labels. I mean, these are gross generalizations. But I well, think we, don't, we don't fix our own cars anymore. Exactly. You know, we don't uh, do a lot of the things, but that comes with progress at the same time. And I think a lot of that has to do with a perception of trust. Well, if this is being sold in a store, it's got to be safe. 
If I'm buying an iPad, I just assume that it's going to work and that the content that I can get for it, uh, for the most part, is going to be good. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And probably it's going the opposite direction more and more. But somebody's going to make that content. You got to feed the beast. And Absolutely. This is the thing when you know we saw that cable television was being promoted and marketed as had 500 channels. I thought, what are they going to fill those channels with? And it turns <laughs> out they've gone to lengths to fill those channels with things that, while in some ways, and I, I'm not much of a TV consumer, so in some ways I could say, well, okay, there's some compelling stuff out there. For the most part, I'll give you a perfect example of this. And, and I'll just throw an idea out there, and if anybody wants to p- follow this idea, please get in touch with me. Um, you've got all of these consumption devices. Great. Where's the interactive artwork form that should follow these things, that should be on these things? When you have something like the iPad, seems to me like that is an opportunity to make new forms of, of communications media that don't exist. And, and here's a great example of this. Um, in, the journalist, in the journalism world, right, we've got computer magazines that have been sort of dying away. Yep. So where's the great interactive computer magazine for the iPad platform? Where yep. is it? It doesn't really exist yet. Well, I think there's a pretty significant opportunity there that I know I would love to get involved with. You know, the, 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 the idea being that the magazine... Uh, publishers perceive that their industry is being severely impacted. And, you know, we've read so much uh, editorial uh, stuff about the iPad rejuvenating the the publishing world. And the the answer to that is, sure, but if you think you're just going to take your existing media and reformat it and throw it on an iPad and think that people are going to pay through the nose, like, was it Time or Newsweek? Somebody announced that they were going to have, I think it's Time, it's yeah. going to have their, their iPad version, but it's like $5 an edition. Yeah, it's crazy. You've you got to give us be- more or better content, but you can't uh, expect everyone to, to pay a premium for that. Right. And But by the same token, as a content creator yourself, as well as I am, that doesn't come cheap. Creative people, uh, writers, artists, they have to live too. They have to support their families and pay a mortgage and – buy a car and send their kids to college so that all that costs money. We can't produce content for free. And yet we seem to increasingly be living in a, a, a consumer-driven world where everyone thinks, I bought the iPad, everything on it should be free. I just recently had a, a long, I don't want to say a conversation or argument, but it kind of came right in between the two mm-hmm. where he never bought any paid apps on the App Store and he feels that everything on there should be free. Because he already bought the iPad. Or actually, this was going back. He already pays for the iPhone. He pays for a monthly bill and this, that, and the other. So why should I have to pay for the apps? And it was literally talking to a brick wall. He just did not understand the concept of Apple isn't making these apps. It's third-party software developers, and they need to feed themselves as well. It's a, it's a significant problem. And look, the music industry has been grappling with this for years now this idea that there is some significant value for music to music, which I don't disagree with at all. I actually, it's funny, I just ordered the newest Jeff Beck record, and I ordered the CD uh, for, I think it's like, I think I, 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 I got it on sale for like $10, and I noticed that on Amazon they're selling the record for like four ninety nine, and I thought to myself, well, no, I, I want the physical CD, I want the uncompressed audio, I want the booklet, 
I want the notes. Um, but you I, don't I, want that for everything. For every piece of music that you consume, you don't no. want the physical CD. No, I don't. But at the same time, if if I'm going to buy something in a virtual format, better give me a price break on it. Yeah. You know, you can't expect to sell the same content for the same money, remove all the distribution costs, the shipping costs, remove all of that stuff from the equation, the physical manufacturing costs, and expect me not to question the value proposition. Well, it's not just consumers that are dealing with that as well. I just heard, oh, maybe a week and a half ago, and I know we're kind of off topic, but this is a good conversation and that's fine. Um, I just heard a good conversation on NPR that dealt with the movie industry and theaters in general and how a lot of Mm. theaters now are going to this digital distribution method because they don't need a physical print of the movie. They just basically need a great big huge – MPEG file, but right. yet they're still charged as if they ordered an actual print. And th- there's problems there. There's a perceived value and real values, and the two, well, they're really not reconciling themselves well yet. Well, they're going on the fact that people have a very short memory. Look, I, I remember when we went from the vinyl LP to the CD, I and did at too. the time, remember... Uh, uh, LPs were like seven ninety nine to eight ninety nine. The CD was fourteen ninety nine. Yep. And at the time, consumers were told this is being done for two reasons: a) we have to recoup our R and D costs, so we have to charge <laughs> you more up front. But they said, you know, in a very short time span, the price of these things is are all going to go down. Yeah, and they did it, and they never did. No, in fact, they went uh, up. Absolutely. I remember when they went from fourteen ninety nine to like sixteen ninety nine, and then you read that the artists were getting like a dollar. Yeah, if that. If that. So you're like, what? Well, what the hell's going on here? And you know, the answer is that, and this is a the, the bigger the bigger issue in our society, which is that, uh, and I really think this all Tim went down in the eighties, in the Reagan years, the greed is good years, when all of a sudden the idea that. Because for a long time, people who were going into the retail business figured, if I can do 100% markup, if I have a 100% profit margin, I'm rocking. That's it. Uh, you know, that, if I can double the price, my wholesale price, and sell it, then I've got some room to bargain down. I've got some room to put stuff on sale, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, the way that the world worked in the 80s, it got to the point where people started getting used to the idea of multiple hundreds of percentile points in margin. In margins, and so now all of a sudden, companies would make a product, you know. And look at the food companies. You go and look at your box of cereal. That's four dollars, mm-hmm. and you look at the cost of goods of the actual cereal itself, and you're looking at what fifteen cents, twenty cents for the cereal, and you think, wait a minute, how did the box of cereal where the cereals like were twenty cents, how did they get marked up to four bucks? What well, the hell is that? I, I can actually answer that one because I live in Battle Creek, Michigan, and you should know what's in Battle Creek, Michigan. <laughs> you tell. Uh, they're great. And I know for a fact that people that were working at that factory at a time where the average factory work was making about 20 bucks an hour, they were making $45, $50 an hour. Mm-hmm. And then bragging to me that, you know, I'll go to work and I'll sleep for a half hour to two hours and we'll take turns sleeping. And then uh, that's why cereal costs so much. And at least that's part of the reason. Well, it's part of it. Yes. 
a big part of it really ended up being that companies got hooked on excessive profits like addicts get hooked to crack cocaine, man. I mean, this is just a reality. I look at the pharmaceutical companies. When you look at the cost of manufacturing a bottle of take your pick and you look at what they're getting for it, basically what you've got is a situation where incredibly unrealistic expectations were put in place. And it got to the point where if a company wasn't making 200% profit margin, oh my God, now the stock's getting hammered. Yeah, I think that's what, I think you just hit on uh, what a lot of the problem is, and that's the stock market and expectation of continued growth. And I think that's where a lot of uh, uh, the problems are right now in the financial institutions where there's a constant need for constant growth. Uh, staying at the same level doesn't seem to be good enough. But thankfully, there are a lot of companies out there, I think, that while they're profitable, they're, they also go out of their way to make the customer's experience really well. And they win the customers where the ones that just are, are only concerned about money mm-hmm. are starting to fall to the wayside. And I think Apple is a good example of that. They're producing great content as far as our computers. I mean, they just released, which looks like, I don't, ha- I don't have my hands on one yet, brand new MacBooks and MacBook Pros. They look like fantastic machines. Mm-hmm. The price stay the same. You just get, actually, they went down on a couple models. Right. Um, but, but you're getting a lot more machine. The iPad is, and I've got one sitting here, it's a fantastic device. And I can point to all the world computing. We have some great products, and we go out of our way to make sure that the customer is happy, no matter what it takes. So there are good companies out there, but you're right. There's some companies out there that the only thing that they worry about is increasing revenue year after year and, and staying at the top of the stock market. So, and let's address something. And I've said this on, on in different venues about this idea of, unrestrained growth. I mean, people think that somehow that's a desirable thing. And what I've said to many people in the years I've been talking about this is that, hey, if you look at the human body, we have a comparable model for this idea of unrestrained growth. It's called cancer, <laughs> and it kills you. <laughs> I mean, that's the deal. That's how, and, and to think that this planet is not some sort of a, of a, of a closed-loop system where essentially it's the same kind of thing, you know, unrestrained growth, really. At some point, the planet says, hey, I can't deal with this. And oh, by the way, humans, you're a subset of me. You don't (laughs) actually own me. So if you start to take a little too much, I'm going to push back. And, you know, if you bring that up in mixed company, people are like, the Earth? The Earth as, as somehow an intelligent system? Are you crazy? And it's like, are you really that full of ego and vanity where you think that Somehow you, as, as Bill Hicks would say, humans are, you know, viruses with shoes. <laughs> that, that you own the planet, that the planet is your unlimited pantry and toilet bowl. You know, the planet might have something to say about this. And I see no reason to, to think otherwise. Well, let's start talking about Photoshop, the new uh, CS5. But uh, let me remind you, and I don't know if... You've listened to uh, OWC Radio in the past, but anytime we have guests, at the end of our conversation, I have a little game that we play. It's called This or That. Uh, uh-huh. there's, it's, there's no right or wrong answer. I'll give you um, – I'll say white or black, and you'll say black because my car is black. So it's just or this or that. Okay. And I'll give you five of them. Four of them will be tech-related. One of them will not be tech-related. I see. So let's a little bit before we get to there. Let's talk about Adobe CS5. Um, I have to be honest; it seems like it wasn't very long ago that CS4 came out, and now I'm already looking at CS5. And I kind of had a problem with that for a while until I watched uh, 
a really cool video called Content Aware Fill, and I went, okay, I'm sold. I want yep. Photoshop CS5. It's pretty close to science fiction. Content. It's magic, dude. It, this is what Harry Potter uses, I'm swear, I swear. Well, it's... okay, so the answer to that is that at a certain level, it looks like magic. What people are going to discover as they start to use this feature is that it's not quite as magical as they might have hoped it is. <clears throat> and, and I say that because, like anything else, when, if you go on YouTube, you've been able to watch for a while now videos that are product technology demonstrations that Adobe has put out there. And as you would expect, when you watch somebody from Adobe use content-aware fill, it's like unbelievable. Oh, my God! And, you know, the answer to that is they took some time to pick an image that would really, really complement the feature, okay? Of course. So now when you start to really get into using it, there are some things you start to discover. And I'll give you a few. This is Let's get right down to brass tacks on this stuff. Um, most of the time when you've seen it demoed, you'll watch uh, somebody do just like a real loose lasso selection and hit the backspace key. All right. First problem is that content-aware fill really, I've discovered, and I've been using it for a while now. I've been you know, on the beta list for this thing, and so I've been really putting it through its paces. Um, issue A, this idea of you're going to make a selection around something with the lasso tool and just hit delete, most of the time that doesn't really work. No. First of all, what you really have to understand is that like anything else, blending what you do with the existing background is really critical. So first thing I discovered is that when you make that lasso selection, mm, put some feathering on the edge of that selection. This mm -hmm. way what you do will more, more naturally blend the pixels that it puts in the middle there that it fills the hole with will more convincingly blend with the pixels on the surrounding area in the surrounding areas that's a b uh the algorithm behind content aware fill does a much better job if your object is on a fairly complex but natural background right okay so when i say complex but natural uh if you have a background consisting mostly of straight line things let's say, a piece of wallpaper that's got lots of straight lines in it, you delete the person from that wallpaper, it's got a harder time rebuilding uh, a background that consists mostly of artificial, manufactured, or straight edges of things. I would think that that would be just the opposite. I would think that that would be more simple for the program to figure that out than... Not the way it does its patching. No, it's hmm. not. And and the reality is that if you're if you're pulling something out of a background that's an artificial background, um, you're going to end up doing enough retouching after you use content aware fill, where you might look at it and go, you know, I might have just used um, <laughs> time tested cloning techniques to yes. do this to begin with. Um, so again, anything that has manufactured backgrounds, things that have been like made by human hands, where you have lots of straight lines and and a good amount of symmetry. It doesn't do as good a job on it. It likes to have a chaotic background. So like the, the Adobe demos, they'll pull somebody out of a rock wall. Right. Now, the rock wall has some real nice entropy going on. Um, the patch technique that they use to patch together things from the surrounding areas, it likes natural and tropic backgrounds. It likes <clears throat> lots of weird little detailed things where the details are, are asymmetrical, 
They're sort of random, so like the rocks, stones, trees. It does a great job with foliage. So it's kind of taking the, the concept of the chaos theory, but in reverse. Yeah, it's trying... Well, sort of. I mean, it's trying to basically... Well, no, it's chaos theory in a linear fashion. It's trying to basically recreate chaos in one part of the image by patching it together from other parts of the image where there's a good amount of chaos. Now, here's a question, and I didn't get an answer to this uh, by looking at the demos online. When you do content-aware fill, does it do the fill on a new layer, or does it overwrite the existing pixels in the graphic? Uh, It overwrites the existing pixels. Uh, See, I would like it better if it simply created a new layer with the fill as that layer so I could... You know, go back and forth a little bit, and you know what you I know mean. What? That'd be that'd be pretty easy to do anyway, if you think about it. Um, well, I could duplicate the layer, sure, right, and but, then you know, just blast away the surrounding stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems to me like that would be a minor tweak. I don't think that would be a hard thing to do. I think what they really want to do is get the algorithm out there so people start to bang on it. The, the other aspect of using content-aware fill that needs to be mentioned is that when they show it, they usually show it with a selection, but it turns out that if you um, if you dig you find that the spot healing tool has a content-aware mode in it. Really? Yes, so you can paint on the content-aware fill, and I have found that in many ways that is actually a superior strategy. What you end up doing is you end up, instead of making a whole big selection around something and filling in, instead, let's say you had somebody standing on a background where there was one texture of rock wall, let's say up to their uh, neck, and then their head is on a slightly different texture. Oh, okay, I see where you're going. So in that case, you take the spot healing uh, 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 tool, put it in content-aware mode, paint over, let's say, where the head is, let it fill in that part first, then you start to paint over, let's say, the body, but in segments. And you do it in a way where it's you're fairly tight in on the thing you're trying to remove. Again, when they show this with the lasso tool, they come a good amount away from the object. But really, that only makes sense if you're feathering those edges and you need blend region to, to create more of a, of a convincing transition. Um, when you're using the spot healing tool, it turns out it does a really nice job when you're painting in pretty tight on the object. Um, and then just understand that almost invariably you end up having to do a little retouching work afterwards to clean things up. So so this idea that, you know, untrained monkeys are going to make this. <laughs> That's no, yeah. It's just, it's like, no, it's like anything else. It's another tool that, when used by monkeys, will look like a monkey used it. Yeah, but like, I looked at it like, you know, this could actually save me time. I didn't expect it to really be magical. Uh, I just right. looked at it and thought, compared to the way I do a lot of the cloning work that I have to do now to remove objects in a, in a picture... Right. That this will save me at least half the time that I spend right now doing it. And half the time, let's be honest, if I'm working on this Easily. image for two hours and it cuts out an hour out of my workflow, that's a very valuable hour. Absolutely. So I'm and, looking no, for it for that reason alone. Absolutely. But I'll tell you something, Tim. A lot of digital photographers, they're going to look at that and they're going to okay, they're gonna go, okay, that's, that's cool, but um, I still have to retouch the thing. Something that they're gonna they're gonna like look at and go holy moly, um, are the new sharpening and noise removal algorithms that are in Camera Raw. This is stuff they've brought over from Lightroom. I was gonna ask. It sounds like a lot what Lightroom is already doing. Uh, the the latest version of Lightroom. And I don't know that they're. Sh- I don't think they're shipping yet. Are they? 
I'm not I sure. I think it's still it. in beta. I think it's still in beta. Yeah. So the um, the color and uh, uh, luminosity noise removal algorithms that are in Lightroom, I think it's three, that are in the newest Lightroom, those are in camera raw in Photoshop. And for people who look at Lightroom and go, well, you know, if I'm a Photoshop user, hardcore Photoshop user, and I don't care about Lightroom, and that's certainly a reasonable stance, I think, for a lot of Photoshop users. Sure. When they see this new, uh, these new algorithms for, for noise and, um, and sharpening, for noise removal and sharpening, when they see that stuff and they see the results that those new algorithms generate, it's significant. I mean, mm. it's actually kind of huge. Um, and the one thing I, I'll say about that is that I'm kind of <laughs> a little bummed out that they didn't decide to build those new algorithms right into the main body of the application. They're in camera raw, so you sort of have to go through camera raw to use them. I would have liked to have seen those things inside of Photoshop. So it's not really inside of Photoshop, so I can't apply those same things to the JPEGs that I open. No, you can. I mean, there's a way to, to open JPEGs and TIFF files up through camera raw. That's a trick that you can do. Hmm. So, so you can do that, but you have to go through camera raw. Hmm. It, it would have been nice to have had those inside of the main application. For me, just in terms of... Um, Deciding when to use them. Right. And, right. So one of the things I've taught my students for years, you sharpen images at the very end of what you're doing. Right. So one thing that's always driven me nuts about camera raw is that if you use it in its default state. Does it without, at the very beginning. It, it, it will actually apply the sharpening you do inside of it to the image as it opens it up. Yep. Um, there's a way to turn that off, by the way. Uh, so it doesn't default to that. But the fact that they're doing that is completely counterintuitive. It's, it's the last place you want to do it. So the new sharpening stuff, it would have been really nice to have had it inside of the application. You know what kind of bugs me is Adobe really seems to be positioning Photoshop. They started it somewhat in CS4, but they really seem to be pushing it more in CS5. And that's out of the 3D stuff. Um, I would, can't so. they just get rid of the 3D stuff out of Photoshop and have a dedicated app for 3D? And I kind of think they do, and it's called After Effects. Um, well, well, <laughs> After Effects is pretty far from a real 3D program. That's true. But for what it's doing in Photoshop as far as 3D work, that would fit, I would think, more into After Effects than Photoshop. It so, seems like Photoshop's kind of becoming a dumping ground for all the catch-all new technologies that everyone seems to think they want, and they don't really know, do we start a new application? No, we'll just put it in Photoshop. Yeah, that'll, that'll work. Well, uh, let me address that, because uh, in CS5, the extended version of Photoshop, the only thing that separates Photoshop CS5 extended from the standard version is this new Reposé 3D extrusion tool, um, which, in my testing of it so far, I've been very unimpressed with a its speed i think it's glacially slow um and honestly the final render quality look at this point in time you know we're in 2010 3d tools are pretty darn sophisticated yep so to look at what's going on inside of for example repose and to look at the, the the interface to look at the quality of the render there's no way that this justifies an extra 300 dollar premium for extended. It just doesn't. There are some really great 3D tools. I mean, and the Mac, because we're a Mac show. Right. You're a Mac show here, right? Well, a technology uh, show. Okay, but it, it's primarily focused, well, well, I shouldn't say primarily focused on the Mac, but 
let's just, for, for example, look at the macro for a moment. Anybody who wants to really work with 3D, for example, on a Mac, you take the $300 you'd spend to get Photoshop CS5 extended, take half that money, and go buy Cheetah 3D. Or Strata. Which, you know what? Strata's got enough baggage with it at this point. <laughs> I but, know it, but it's kind of a nice entry. Company. It's it's kind of a nice entry point for someone who really doesn't know anything about How much 3D. is it? You know, it's been so long. I think it's two ninety nine. It's already twice as much money as Cheetah three D. Cheetah three D. I've never heard of it to be honest. It's a phenomenally powerful, incredibly good three D app that that uh, written by one guy, this German guy, um, small developer. It's a Mac only program. Cheetah three D dot com. You got to check it out. It's a killer piece of three D software, especially for the money. It's sick, and, and it does real luminosity rendering. Hmm. And the renders, go look at the page. Go look at the renders it pops out. It's 100 times better than anything you'll get out of the 3D capabilities in Photoshop. I generally agree with you about this, but I think it, it begs a bigger question, which is with Adobe being kind of like the Microsoft of graphics, mm -hmm. why the hell don't they have a real 3D program? Well, that's, that was my question next. Why, why doesn't Adobe get into 3D? And let's be honest, do we really want them to at this point? I don't. I think, Adobe, I think Adobe's big problem right now, and I know this not from my role at OWC, but uh, when I was publishing MyMac.com, is that I was bombarded from Adobe PR in the last two years, mm -hmm. uh, more so than I've ever been in the past. And I heard this from multiple publishers as well. I know for a fact that CS4 didn't sell as well as they had hoped it would. Right. Um, and a lot of that came out because, realistically, it was 18 months after CS3. And that's there was a their, lot that's of... That's rev cycle, Tim. That's it. It's every 18 yeah, months. And, and I think that that's where the problem is, that they're trying to do too much in too short of a time frame, and it's an entire suite now. So instead of, you know what, in two years we're going to have a new Photoshop, in uh, two and a half years we're going to have a new Illustrator... Uh, but Dreamweaver really needs some concentration right now. So we're going to have a new rev of that every, you know, 12 months uh, for the next three years just to get it on par where it should be. Right. Um, all the different software families are all on the same schedule. And yet these are totally different software suites or applications that really, if they were lived on their own and on their own release schedule, I mean, I'll give you a prime example. Um, coming from... The, a production background in IT, I use Illustrator probably, well, not as much now, but it, it used to be I would use Illustrator much more than I used Photoshop. So I was one of the rare people online that was actually still reviewing Adobe Illustrator. And so when I did the CS4 review, I didn't give it real high marks because it literally broke the workflow from every version of, C, of uh, Illustrator up to this point. Yeah, I mean, completely broke the workflow. If you opened up say, a CS2 file in Illustri Illustrator, it completely didn't work. And uh, you literally had to rebuild that entire file. You're making me think of CS5. Oh, no, no, excuse me, Photoshop 5.0. What it did oh, yes. color management. I mean, it was like Armageddon. Yep. But, of course, that was back in the time. I mean, that wasn't too far ahead of when... Uh, Photoshop supported color. I mean, look at the very first version of Photoshop. That didn't even support color, did it? Sure it did. Did it? I thought yeah. it was black and white only. Oh, no, 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 huh. no. You're thinking of, 
you're thinking of Image Studio and Color Studio, letter sets. Yeah, probably. Now that's yeah, no, no. Photoshop was absolutely color out of the gate. So what's Puppet Wrap or Warp? Puppet I'm sorry. Ah, oh, now see, this to my mind is besides content aware fill, it's probably one of the most useful new abilities and fun new abilities. And what that is actually is technology that they, they took out of Adobe After Effects. Um, and in After Effects, it was really designed to do what the name implies, puppet animation. So what you've got there is an incredibly intelligent distortion tool that, and I'll try to turn this into English. This is one of those things where it's best seen and not, not described. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's one of those things. But essentially what you've got, you take your two-dimensional image and puppet warp puts underneath of that image a 2.5D armature. So let's say you have a picture of a mannequin, and there's a great uh, video up on the YouTube where Russell Brown shows us. You have a picture of a mannequin, two-dimensional image of a mannequin. You apply the puppet warp tool, and, and what that does is it analyzes the image, and it breaks the image down into polygonal shards, which then what you do is you, you, you it's almost as if you took your two-dimensional image and put it on a piece of rubber. Mm-hmm. Now you have these virtual push pins. You knock these pins down into the image, and the pins can either act as a way to nail part of the image down, um, or take the part where you put the nail down, the push pin down, and now distort it while it moves all of the attached pixels in a way that would make sense if you were trying to make, let's say, a South Park-style animation out of this two-dimensional picture of a person. Mm. So, so that's the, the, the primary approach of what it does is, is, is based on that concept, but when you take it further out, because what it really is, is this unbelievably precise warping and distortion engine, the likes of which we've never seen in any other program, ever. Um, and it takes these things and it delivers them to you as a way to now distort two-dimensional still images so that you can, you can, you can do the kinds of things that before to use, let's say, something like Liquify, mm-hmm. it would have driven you out of your mind. Absolutely. It would, it would have just, you'd have been like, oh my God, how do I deal with moving? And this is another really interesting thing about Puppet Warp. And, and we could, I could actually go down this rabbit hole for a long time, but I won't. We'll save it for another episode when I come back to tell you the history of that ability to manipulate pixels, which did not, there's, a, there's, there's, there's an entire institutional history of the development of that kind of capability. You know what it reminds me of when I looked at the video? It reminded me, and I don't know why, but the first thing that popped up to my, into my mind was Kai Power's tools. Remember that? Well, you're probably thinking of Kai's Power Goo. Goo. Was that Goo? I thought it was tools. Yeah, no. it was Goo. You're thinking of Kai's yeah. Power Goo, which actually was a much less capable version of a technology that we saw long before Kai's Power Goo in a program, a now long-defunct program called Valis Flow. Hmm. Valis Flow, which ended up being, at the time, one of the most powerful distortion engines anybody had ever come up with. And in fact, that code got licensed to Adobe by the original developers many years ago. I don't know, I don't know where that code ended up inside of it. It might have been the, um, the, uh, what, the reshape command in After Effects. Anyway, yeah, Kai, look, not to go down the Kai rabbit hole, but it was you know, fun software. You got to get was, that. It was fun stuff, but and it was inexpensive. Yes, but none of what Kai did was particularly original. Oh no, of- absolutely not. But he presented it in a way that 
made it very approachable to an everyday user. And you could also use it not just, I mean, for almost anything. I mean, you, you throw a graphic at it, that program tended to open it. Um, because back then, uh, Adobe was just too expensive. I was using Color It, <laughs> you know. Oh, and, Frontier was a digital Frontier. Uh-huh. Was, oh man, you know <laughs> the history of Mac graphics stuff, man. Let me tell you, that's a whole different podcast, isn't it? A whole it? different podcast. That's a long show because there there is a history, and nothing that we see now came out of a vacuum. Nothing. So let me ask you this: for those listening out there, someone's uh, working in the graphics field. Is there a compelling reason for them to immediately upgrade to CS5, or would you suggest holding off if cost is an issue for them? Well, so it's a good question. And what it comes down to really is are you making money with the tools that you use? So if someone is a retoucher and they're billing money for the time they spend retouching images, content-aware fill is enough of a selling point. Mm-hmm. Okay? They, will, they will basically get a decent return on investment just from that alone. Also, one has to take into account production artists who are working on high-resolution files with lots of layers. Okay, the 64-bit native abilities of Photoshop CS5, the amount of memory it can now address, the significant speed increases that people who are working with pre-pressed resolution images will see is a huge benefit. It's a huge gain. If you've got a Mac tower that's loaded with RAM, this is the first version of Photoshop that gives you access to all your RAM. Hmm. So Yeah, that right there is pretty compelling. It's extremely compelling, but it's only compelling if you're working on high-res images. Right. If you're just doing web work, probably not. That's, that's a lot less important to you. Um, but if you're doing, just doing web work and you're spending a good amount of time doing like jib jab style web animation well you know like for there uh well actually if you're doing that you've already had a, a after effects cs4 and you're using the puppet tool in there yes okay because there it's the puppet tool and that's where again the puppet tool came from was after effects but in after effects it's all about animating things um you know and and some point we'll do a show about why after effects is so much of, of a better compositing tool than photoshop and always has been hmm. that's like a whole nother can of worms <laughs> that that many years ago uh, i used to write a column on adobe's website my very first column which you can still find archived up on the web especially in their european subsites uh the first column was why after effects is a better compositing tool than photoshop and it got me into some hot water with Adobe management. And I got called to a meeting with, with the then CEO of the company, Bruce Chisholm, who, who had a one-on-one meeting with me to, to, to find out why I would say such a thing. And I had to kind of give him this whole history of After Effects and Photoshop and why, in many ways, if, you know, if After Effects had a CMYK separation engine and real painting tools, it would, it would kill Photoshop. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's something that has long been an issue at Adobe, especially <laughs> given the fact that, you know, Photoshop accounts for way more revenue for the company than after. Effects. Oh, absolutely. So and that's you know, only going to get bigger. Oh, yeah. Oh. So let's do uh, a this or that before we have to uh, let well, you go. We're not done talking about all the new stuff, man. We didn't get to HDR Pro. I know it, but after 45 we minutes. We're... the mixer brush. Are you serious? <laughs> We didn't get to our fine edge, dude. The fine edge. The fine edge, man. We didn't get to the 
to the smart radius stuff that's going to make make it so much easier to isolate things with hair. Another thing, and that's a, an important one, if you're a production artist and you're having to isolate objects with complex edges mm -hmm. from backgrounds, the new smart radius stuff inside of the refine edge dialog, that alone is enough of a reason to upgrade. And, and by the way, let me qualify this. CS4 had some compelling stuff, but in the economic environment into which it was released, yeah. you know, production artists who were like independents were looking at the, the cost of things going, well, forget it. I can't justify the cost. I mean, some of those same people are going to look at CS5 and go, I still don't have the money. Right. But if they're making money with the tool, I think that, and again, if they fit into the categories we've talked about, people who are compositors, people who are retouchers, working with pre-press uh, uh, resolution imagery, for those people, this is going to be a no-brainer upgrade. Well, let me ask you a simple question then. Yeah. Is CS4 or CS5 a better upgrade at the time? CS5 is a better upgrade, clearly. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, the, for for me, uh, CS3 was a great update only for the Illustrator capabilities that came out, mm -hmm. um, but not so much Photoshop. But this is the first one that Photoshop is really compelling to me, yeah. um, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. This or that. Okay. I, I'll give you a uh, – let me start here. Okay. Do I have to answer like in weird voices? No, you don't. <laughs> First one, Safari or Firefox? Ooh. Uh, Speed-wise, Safari, just in terms of performance. If you want to watch videos on a, on a G5 machine, yeah. Safari all the way, baby. Firefox Firefox within like an hour just starts to slug down. Yeah, I don't know why it does that. You're oh, not the first I, one that said that on the show either. Yeah. So, yeah, uh I can't believe I'm saying this Safari. Safari. Laptop or desktop? Oh, man. I want both. You want both. Everybody wants both, but if you could only have one. Are you an on-the-go guy or are you a homebody? I guess is really the question. Man, it you know so it depends on what I'm doing. I'll give you a perfect example of, of this. If I'm going out to jam with my guitar and I want to be able to like have my studio in a box with me, mm -hmm. laptop, man. A desktop is useless in that. I mean, you know, I have my laptop, my, my now aging MacBook Pro uh, with my guitar rig interface <laughs> and my very X guitar and forget it, man. I'm, you know, I can make any sound you can imagine. And I can do it anywhere where I can plug my damn laptop in. So but you know, those new laptops are just wow. I mean, I, I personally, I'm running a 2.53 uh, Mac MacBook Pro 15 inch, right. and I do everything on this machine from video to I mean, you name it, I, I do it. Yeah. And it it I'm not even at that point where I think, well, maybe the new laptop should be. No, I'm I'm so fast on this machine still that I have no compelling reason to get the new machines. Uh, you know what I. I th I'm sort of with you on that. Um, I think given where laptops are now, it, it, you know, desktops are now a hard sell if you don't need it slots. Is. It, yep. It's a hard sell. So, totally yeah, different I, story five years ago. Yeah, I have to go with laptop. Point and shoot or DSLR? DLS, uh, DSLR. Um, DSLR. What did yeah, I say? Uh, no, no. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just choosing the no. second. Yeah, I get a little dyslexia sometimes. No, so. no, 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 no. No. Uh, when it comes down to it, uh, when it comes to photography, I like having control of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. What camera do you use? 
Well, it's funny. I have a D40X, a Nikon D40X that I bought uh, brand new at Costco when it first came out. Uh, and it's it's been great. Uh, I've, I've been really happy with it. And it's kind of odd because it's one of those that didn't last very long. They kind of quickly replaced it with, I think, the D60. Yep. Um, but I've been very happy with the D40X. I've used it in all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Nikon user. I know that this is one of those things where you have the Nikon heads and the Canon heads at each right. other. But my dad was a Nikon user, and he was a professional photographer. My first camera was a Nikon F Atomic I still own. Hmm. It still works. Still works. Uh, still I'm not works. really surprised. I think the equipment back then for cameras, that, man, those things were bulletproof. Like tanks. They were. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, my, I have a Nikon D40X, and I'll probably use it until my arms fall off. <laughs> <laughs> the last of the tech ones. Let me see which would be a good one for a USB or Firewire. Oh, boy. Um you know, with legacy technologies, I mean, you can still get performance out of FireWire that you can't get out of USB. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're pumping around video, you know, uh, clearly, uh, I think FireWire still makes sense. I mean, it's one of those things where at some point we know that there'll be a flavor of USB that will be on par with FireWire. We're not there yet. No, and maybe it's going to be USB 3.0, and we know that I, FireWire is dead after FireWire 800. Right. I mean, that's it's the last iteration of FireWire. And after that, we have new technologies coming out. So Now, this one, the last one here is not it's kind of tech related, but not really. And it comes from Neil Monks, a listener, and he asks, SimCity or Quake? Kind of takes you back a little bit there. I you know, of all the Sim stuff, Sim Ant was my favorite. You know, you're I, I've heard that a number of times. <laughs> There's uh, not a lot of people played Sim Ant to be honest, but oh, that was those who have just loved Sim Ant. That was the cool one, man. Um you know, it's odd. Uh, I'm old enough, Tim, where when people talk about video games, I think about things like Battlezone and the original Star Wars vector game. Oh, I do too. Absolutely. And then I think of games like Chiller. Now nobody remembers Chiller. Chiller. Nobody. Doesn't sound familiar, unless it was that one with the penguin. No man, Chiller was one of these light rifle arcade games that 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 actually. Now this is a, just you made me do this. True story. <laughs> Many years ago, I was demoing at a Digital Hollywood Expo. Um, I was was on a panel doing something, and I forget the context under which it came out. I talked about this amazing video game that nobody would ever remember called Chiller, and so help me, man. The guy sitting next to me on the panel looked at me and went, you remember Chiller? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, I'm the author of it. <laughs> I thought my head was going to explode. <laughs> I was like, ah! I just like lost it in front of this audience of like 600 people. I lost my mind. And I had, had to describe how Chiller was this video game where, again, one of these light rifle games, but it was totally demented. And it was sick. And it was one of these things that came out at a time when Nobody really knew that people were making these insane video games like this guy did. So, like, the very first room in Chiller, there'd be, like, somebody with their head in, a, in like, a vice. <laughs> you had to shoot the handle of the vice that gradually closed the vice down on their heads. And then there were, like, rats running out from holes in, in the walls <laughs> of this dungeon. And you, if you shot the rats, you'd get extra points. And it was graphic and it was disgusting. It was you loved brutal. it. It was fabulous. Yeah. So, you know, with, with, like, later video games, with all of the cool creative software that's out there, who cares about games? I, I'm, I, I 
grew out of games a long time ago. I don't know. You know, I started with the, jeez, uh, Pong and the Atari 2600. Oh, the and, you know, I spent many a quarter in the arcade back in the 80s. Um, right. right, exactly. Because you go there and you'd meet girls at the arcade. Yeah, right? but, you know, I, I'm 40 years old now, David, and I have kids. I have four kids. But I got to be honest, I love playing video games still. I can't wait for Harry Potter Lego because my wife likes the Lego games too. So we're going to be sitting there visiting Lego Hogwarts for weeks at a time. She still pulls out Lego Batman. I mean, you know, she, she loves that stuff. Now, I like Grand Theft Auto myself, but I can't play that when the kids are up and about. Talk about violent, right? Oh, man. Oh, it's fabulous. Love it. David Bieni, where can the listeners go online to learn more about you, find your other works, that sort of thing? They can't. They Next can't. Got to use an <laughs> iPad. That's the only way. <laughs> well, you know, you can always find me over at uh, Mac Life's website. I'm a contributing editor for Mac Life magazine. Um, that's where my Mac-related stuff is. Otherwise, you know, just go type me in the search engines and Google you. Be afraid, yeah. But just be gentle. Yeah, be real gentle. More like be afraid. <laughs> That's right. There you go. <laughs> David Biedney, thank you very much for being on OWC Radio this week. Cool, Tim. My pleasure. Take care, man. <laughs>